The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. How's it going? And welcome to episode 98 of On The Wire, proud member of the Pitcherless Podcast Network. Follow the pod on the Twitter at OnTheWirePod. Of course, if you're listening on a platform that allows ratings and reviews, please take a second to let us know what you think. I am Adam Howe. You can follow me on the Twitter at 80 Great. That's all spelled out. Once again, joined by Kevin Hastings, who should be followed on the Twitter at HastingKevin. And we we have we had a lot more to talk about this past this week, Kevin, that I really thought we were going to at this point. A lot of big stuff's happening. Are you, how are you keeping up with everything? Yeah, it's been crazy. We've been talking for several weeks now about how great this offseason right. has been. And that would make us think that things are going to have to slow down. And they do at some point. But we haven't reached that point yet. Yes, I was surprised when we started going over the outline for this recording of how much is actually still going on. It's absolutely amazing. Yeah. Sooner or later, spring training will happen. And then (laughs) we'll have even more to talk about as things are actually happening on the field. But right now, the news cycle is not slowing down, which is nice. Luckily, we have with us a very special guest who knows how to talk about all the things that are happening on his various podcasts with a very special theme. Of course, that is going to Brian Bubba Entrek, a host of the Benched with Bubba podcasts, including the Bubba in the Bloom, Bubba in the Bat Flip, Bubba in Insert Anybody Else Here at this point. Bubba can be found putting out content with his newest venture, Gaining the Edge Fantasy, with a pretty solid crew alongside him and Mike Curlin. Make sure to give him <laughs> a follow at B-D-E-N-T-R-E-K on the Twitter and Gaining the Edge at Gaining the Edge on the Twitter as well. Bubba's now participated in our On The Wire Listener League for two straight years. And we'll talk to him about how he decided to construct his team in the most recent draft that just concluded a couple of days ago and how he thought the dra- how he thought his drafts are going to continue to move along throughout the offseason. But for now, just Bubba, thanks for joining us, man. How you doing? Thanks for having me. It's, uh, it's great to be back on The Wire, one of the awesome best podcasts out there. Like people need to I think they all do listen by now, but they don't need me to tell you, but it's a. I remember when you guys started out, I, I got to do it with Kevin because Adam was too important for other things that, that we oh, that's, yeah, that's how it, what it was. But <laughs> we had a lot of fun, so it's fun to get to record on with the whole gang in town. But great show. I always like to support anything Pitcher was does. Nick is a great person, great fantasy guy. So if he's behind it, I'm behind it. And um, I've had a great time getting to know Kevin. I'm looking forward to talking with Adam. And you guys have a great, great show. So thanks for having me back on. 
Oh, Bubba, you're, you're no stranger to the airwaves on all the different shows that you put on. Can you talk to, we've had a couple of your colleagues from Getting the Edge on in recent weeks, but I would make sure we, we had you on here to clear the air and make sure everybody understands what it really is about. Can you give everybody a little bit of an insight into what Gaining the Edge is, why you guys came together with this nice little, I meant it, like Mike's in that group too. Yes. <laughs> Mike is busting out as much content as anybody else, Curlin that is. He was on the show just a couple of weeks ago, but talk to us about what you guys got going on over there and what it is that you're hoping to accomplish. Yeah, it's just a fun thing. We've toyed around with it for a long time when you've done content for a while. Now it's either you try to make it to the big boy sites and, and do that stuff. You dabble in a I've worked for a ton of sites. I still write for mm-hmm. other sites. We try to do a little bit of everything. And then there's a point where the four of us, Mike Curland, yes, Michael Simeon and Jorge Monlin as myself, we all decided that, hey, we're all good friends. We met at FPAS two years ago. We all kind of have a different niche that we, we focus on. And this is a way that we can do the content we want to do without any stipulations, when we want, how we want, like we'll have structure. Don't tell me like there's not any structure, but it's like we have a group chat and we'll be talking about things and all of a sudden we'll get an idea. It's like, hey, I'm going to go write about this. Cool. Go for it. Do it. We have a really cool Discord for our Patreon. There's different price ranges. It's really affordable if you want. Jorge, myself, and Curlin put rankings out. Simeon's jumping on the boat. Now he's actually working on it right now because the Bad X did come out today. So he's doing a cumulative thing for him. So I have consistent rankings with cumulative rankings. Simeon will have all his streaming stuff. Kernland will have all his spring training stuff. He's doing tons of videos. Jorge's going to have his relief pitcher rankings coming out soon. He's going to do a lot of bullpen stuff. I'll do a lot of in-season DFS along with the waiver wire and other stuff. And then we're just doing a bunch of off-season content. We kind of reach out to the Patreon. What do you guys want to know? We'll dig into it for you. They asked a question like a couple of weeks ago, and Simeon came up with this giant PDF chart of all the key stats, what's like elite average so on so it's like you could look at a fan graphs page have this sheet next to you and be like hey this guy's actually good or hey does it so you don't have to like keep flicking back and forth between different uh, links yeah we're just here to have fun doing what we like to do without i guess any stipulations involved and and just help the people that's what we that's what we do this for anyway if you guys record for us what we do it right. for and so that's the fun behind it we just decided to kind of finally go with it this year as we've kind of toyed around with it for a little over a year now I don't know what you're talking about, man. I just do this for me. That's why I have you and all the other great guests and Kevin on here every week, just so it can make my game a little bit better. No, I, what I think I like about your guys' group is that you kind of noted on it. You all have your own special specialities and you guys came together and it's just not four people trying to say the same thing four different ways. You guys are really leaning on each other for what you guys bring to the table. And I think that's a really good way to start and grow that kind of a, a resource for the people going into it. So Definitely be, everybody should be checking out Gaining the Edge. Check out their Patreon. If you just go to at Gaining the Edge on Twitter, you have links to every, all of that right there in the header. So make sure you guys are checking that out. But we got a lot, like like we talked about Kevin earlier, we got a lot to talk about. So let's get into it. But I'm going to start with you here. This was not so much player specific news item, but it came out that the Detroit Tigers came out and announced that they are adjusting the wall height in certain areas. From what I gathered, it's mostly in right field, in right center field of Comerica. And they're going to be lowering the walls a couple, in some instances, a couple feet, in other instances, not that much. We've seen adjustments made in other stadiums, most notably in Baltimore last year, and have those adjustments become pretty impactful into what we saw on the field throughout the course of the season. Do have what you've seen the Tigers announce and show, is that enough for you to push any Tigers hitters up your board? Not really, no. But, That's a, it sounds all fun and dandy. And I guess lowering the fence, the height of the fence will be nice, but they're not bringing left field in. They're not bringing right field in. They're bringing center field in 10 feet, which is great, but still 412. And 
I was reading an article, the average distance in baseball is 402. So it's still, you have to, they basically said, we're trying to benefit guys that actually hit the ball hard to center, not just fly out to center. And like they, they highlighted Riley Green, like a lot of people tweeted out, well, he would have hit 13 home runs in Wrigley and all these things. Most of Riley's balls in Detroit that weren't home runs were still flyouts to left field. So it's like, they're not ones that would have went to center and been big differences. Now you look like Miguel Cabrera would probably have had a few more. Nick Castellanos, who hits the ball up the middle, would have more. Maybe Baez runs into a couple, but it's not – I don't think we're going to see anywhere close to the impact Camden had last year where it just sucked the life out of some of these guys. Like we see Ryan Mountcastle and those guys that just got destroyed with that distance. It's the idea Detroit said they're trying to do is make it beneficial to guys that actually do hit really hard balls to center field, like on a line per se, and but still keep the pitcher's factor of the ballpark. So – I'm not seeing a move to be crazy. The Derek Cardis of the world, the scientists of the world would make way better at this than me. But what I've read early on here in the 24 plus hours or so that we've seen this information, it doesn't seem like it's going to be as dramatic as I think people want. Yeah, that's unfortunate. I, I agree just when I saw the dimensions of just a couple feet here, a couple feet there and moving the wall down rather than in or out, like you mentioned. I, I'm not seeing that making that much of an impact at all. Kevin, do you see it any other different? Do you see any other differences here or are you just on the same bandwagon? Nope, I agree. Maybe there's been a couple of times in drafts I was really looking at Riley Green, but I've pretty much avoided Detroit hitters just because of the fact that barrels don't go out of the park there at nearly the rate as they do at other parks around the league. So maybe if I get that decision again when I was considering it and steered away, I might jump a time or two. But no, for the most part, I agree with both of you guys. I, I will say... Today, the only thing we're recording this on Thursday in the middle of the day, the only thing anybody's talking about, of course, is Derek Cardi's bat X and bat projections have been put out on, on fan graphs. And he has said that he's going to be adjusting the Detroit park factors, but he has not done that yet. So it'd be interesting to, if you get it now, download the projections. And then when he says he adjusts those, go back in and see if they may actually did anything for the Riley Grease of the world. All right, Kevin. We're going to talk about somebody we've talked about on the show before. A lot of people have talked about him quite a bit. And we've had a lot of analysis in different reasons. But we're going to do it again, though, because it is now official. Carlos Correa is staying with the Twins. He's not going to play third base for the Mets. He's not the shortstop of the future for the Giants. He is. He has passed. It has been announced. He is officially wearing the jersey of the Minnesota Twins once again. And for the next six plus years, depending on all of his vesting options, I don't really care about the contract. You guys can talk about that on your own. We care about how this is actually going to impact our fantasy options um, as you're coming in drafts. So I'm going to have you start with Minnesota, Kevin. Where do you see, how do you see this impacting not only Correa, we see what Correa can do, at least from one season in Minnesota, but how is this impacting the rest of the infield for the Twins as you see it? I don't think a whole lot from what we were talking in general earlier in the offseason when we talked about guys like Kyle Farmer when he was added to the Twins roster. We were still under the assumption that they were going to sign another shortstop at that time. And it's been quite a while since then, but now that has come to fruition. So I think the obvious big playing time loser here is Kyle Farmer. And I, but we expected that, at least I did. And I think most of us did. 
So there's not a whole lot there. I'm really intrigued, though, by this lineup. If you look at roster resource, we're assuming that Alex Kirillov is healthy. And they have him as a bench player. If he's healthy, that is a strong assumption. At the, at I think point. right now, I think at this moment, <laughs> sure, he, he's healthy coming assume. into mm-hmm. the season. I think his wrist is ready to go, and he's going to be ready to go for the beginning of spring training. Which so we got to squeeze him in there somewhere at some point as well. The Joey Gallo probably at least against righties and making things crowded. I'm one of the people that is probably a little higher on Nick Gordon than some others, although he has been getting a little bit of helium this offseason. I think quite a few people are starting to like him. The entire lineup here is still, I think, a little bit up in the air, and we may not know until well into spring training when we start seeing what appears to be opening day starting lineups get run out there once we get into March, not just the end of February when the games start. There's still some things to be cleared up here, but obviously I think the big one so far is Kyle Farmer is a utility and backup infielder. It does not appear he's going to have a starting position. Do you have an opinion on where Royce Lewis will end up playing when he is, he's not, he should not be ready for opening day. He's probably going to miss a good chunk of the beginning of the season. That is if he actually gets called up to Minnesota early on as well. He's obviously not the shortstop of the immediate future for the twins anymore, unless Correa is going to move. He was willing to move the third base for the Mets. There's a possibility of that as well. You have Buxton who could go down in a time in center field, but where do you see Lewis fitting into this uh, this roster once he's healthy enough to play? Yeah, that's and and getting mixed signals on the Royce Lewis news. We hadn't heard anything for quite some time. It sounded like it would be at least mid-season before we saw him, but he is running and last I read he will be ready for baseball activity, the quote <laughs> the, whatever that means by spring by early March. So it appears to me that maybe he could be ahead of that mid-season timeline. And then it's really going to depend on the health of the rest of the roster. If Byron Buxton is somehow still healthy when Royce Lewis is ready to return, I think that Carlos Correa to third base move may make some sense. But then where are we moving Miranda? And then where if Kirillov is healthy, if he's the first baseman, we probably think Miranda going to first, I think. Where's he going? Araya, as we know, can play all over the field. So I really think this is something we're not going to know the answers to this, unfortunately, until we see it play out on the field. And there's also the rumors of Arias being dangled in front of the Miami Marlins for Pablo Lopez. And we don't typically hit on as many of the rumors here in this section, but that's something to keep in mind. That might come to fruition by the time this episode actually goes out. So something to keep an eye on. But when you're looking back, now he's already left the Giants. Now he's left the Mets. What kind of, in a weird way, like what kind of hold does this leave for the Mets? Both how does Cohen spend the money? somewhere else not that there's a whole bunch left on the market at this point and what are we seeing at third base for the Mets with Correa not there to fill that gap it's funny because in reality he doesn't need to spend the money it was already extra money right. didn't need to be spent so it's like, yeah he lost out on it It might have actually been a blessing in disguise I respect how he tried to make a physical have to take place every year for the first six years I was like he doesn't trust the ankle that much. I really don't think they have to do too much he probably will is because that's what he wants to do he's got like an itchy trigger finger when it comes to some free agents it feels like but uh, they still have Eduardo Escobar, love him or hate him. But more importantly, Brett Beatty. 
And now, because that was the big question, as one of your top prospects in your entire system, a lot of baseball, what are we going to do with him when they had Correa play in third base? Well, now you have a chance to put Beatty out there and see what they have. There still has Escobar there at third. Escobar can play all over. Escobar can go somewhere else. There's a lot of moving parts with Eduardo Escobar. But I think it really opens up Brett Beatty, brings him back into the fold for a draft coming up, something to keep an eye on. And because like you said, there's not a whole lot out there anymore. It's kind of mm-hmm. late in the game. As a Giants fan, they missed out on Correa and watched all these other guys sign while they thought they had Correa. I was mad about not much being left out there. It's even <laughs> worse now looking back for the Mets if you really need to. So I honestly don't think they need to do anything. Will he do something? Probably, because that's what he does. But they don't need to. I would stick with what you have. And then at least it gives you an option to trade at some point in time if you need to bolster something. Because they bolster the bullpen. They bolster the rotation. The lineup's loaded. There's really not a ton they need to do in New York at this point in time. But it is Steve Cohen. So we would not be surprised if by the time we click record on this as a finished recording, that we see a blurb somewhere that they went and signed someone else already traded for some major guy and Brett Beatty's gone. These are all things that could take place as well. Cohen just bought the twins somehow. I still want Korea. I just want him from a distance. It's just (laughs) one of those things. If I'm a Mets fan, I'm thinking hopefully we would be in on Shohei Otani next season anyway. Save your money. But now we have $330 million to put on top of what we were going to have yep. next year to make that run. If I'm a Mets fan, that's what I want. Roll with Beatty this year yep. or make that midseason trade if it helps them in a postseason run. But this money right now, that's Shohei's money. I cannot wait to see how much money that man makes. <laughs> I know. He should make it all. Back all of it. Yes. Trust, folks. All the money. Rack all the money. Yeah, man. Like when the Giants lost out in Korea, I felt for you guys. Just in the fact that Swanson signed during that time and it's all right, well, if we lose out on if any team lost out on Korea, they could go after Swanson. You just were sitting pretty thinking you were you're good to go. And then all of a sudden there's nothing else left on the wire to gobble up. Hey, you you still got Conforto and Hanager. They can't play shortstop, but next subject. <laughs> all right, moving on. We'll stay in the shortstop realm here. And instead of making Bubba feel bad about his teams, I'll have you guys talk about why I should feel bad about my team. And what I'm talking about is Trevor's story. He had elbow surgery this week, which seemingly came out of nowhere. He should miss some time in 2023. Heim Bloom said, quote, we shouldn't bank on him playing a whole lot in 2023. Don't know how long that actually means. I haven't seen timelines. Maybe you have. But how far does this put story down your board? And how are you feeling about second base without him as an option? It's, it's a rough move because for those that like the Gladiator drafts like I do, I had story on all three of my Gladiator teams. So yay me. <laughs> yay me. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there it is. Yeah, it's mid-January and the teams are gone already. That was fun. Drafting was cool, though. I'll tell you that much. It really was. <laughs> it was a fun moment while it lasted. Yeah, great stuff, good content. But yeah, boom goes the dynamite on that one. And it because it did come out of nowhere. Like some people said, oh, he had other issues before he even signed, which kind of makes you wonder a little bit there. But um, he played through last year. They didn't really, I didn't really hear a whole lot of reports about it throughout the season. It was just a thing and it seemed fine. And I don't know, it stinks. I've heard anywhere from four to six months. I've heard Bloom's comments don't make you feel warm and fuzzy. That they don't bank on Bloom's comments rarely do make me feel warm and fuzzy this year. Fair enough. Fair (laughs) enough. That's fair. So for me, it's almost like I'm not a risk drafter too much. So he's almost just off my board because it's so much what ifs right now. Like so much what ifs. If you really feel a risky, you can probably get them at a heck of a discount. I'm looking forward to waiting a month from now and seeing where that ADP plummets to. I'm real curious in some DCs and whatnot. 
So that could be great. I'm a huge Christian Arroyo fan. I've been writing him up at Gaining the Edge. I've been pumping him up. I've been taking him late in my 50s and whatnot. I believe in what he has, former Giants prospect. He's always been a hitter. He's been what everybody wishes Nick Madrigal would be. This is what Christian Oil is. I guess this is what he is, but he's got more power, I think, than Nick Madrigal. So I'm a big fan of what he has. We saw it in his first extended run of playing time last year. He hit for average, hit for a little pop, even stole a few bags. His overall contact quality improved, which is really good to see with Christian Arroyo. He should, this should allow him to play every day at second base. I thought he still would, but this really shores it up. I'm a fan of that. The other question mark then is Enrique Hernandez that comes to shortstop. And then all of a sudden now we have full-time chance again for Duran in center field. That's big because there was a question mark with the twins with Kirilov on, Kirilov on the bench. Maybe now we have Duran's on the bench. That, that could have been interesting with Enrique in center. Now that changes. What I think the Red Sox should do, and I've said it many places now, is why is Elvis Andrus not in a Red Sox uniform yet? Yeah. Why is this not taking place? The second I knew that blade hit that elbow, I would have been on the phone with Elvis's agent and said, one year for 10 sound good? Like 15? What do you want? Can you come play shortstop for a season? There's no bad one-year deal, right? Yeah, as yeah, I'm just... saying, like, what do you want? Name the price. As long as it's something reasonable we can work with, like, here we go. Because I don't expect him to do what he did with the White Sox last year. That was an amazing season for Elvis Andrews. So let's not be crazy. But we've seen it time and time again, even though he's getting older, if he plays every day, which he does usually because his defense is so good, he's going to hit you 10 to 15 home runs. He's going to still get 10 to 15 bags. He's not going to hurt you in batting average. And when things go really right, like last year in Chicago, it's you get an even better season. Like, we know who Elvis Andrews is. He'd be perfect in Boston. He would allow Enrique Hernandez to still play in center field, which I think is better for the team at this point in time. I'm not a Red Sox fan. Adam could probably talk to that. I think that's what they need to do. So to answer your questions, they need to sign Elvis Andrews. There's rumors. I know we don't like rumors. They're talking about Alberto Mondes in a trade, potentially. And then I'm just avoiding story right now. Yeah, it's probably fair to avoid story. I did the same thing as you. I checked my NFBC shares percentage, player shares and all that. And I was very happy to see that I had avoided Trevor's story. Even though in the very first, like we did a way too early pitcherless mock draft and I did, I grabbed him decently early in that. Luckily, it was just a mock and not my gladiators. Now we're going to talk about somebody else a little bit that I got hit on for gladiators, but story at least wasn't one of them. So I feel for you on that. I'm sorry. Kevin, help me out here. Is there, besides Christian Arroyo, can you squint and see anybody on this current Red Sox roster that can actually take advantage of this black hole that is the middle infield for the Red Sox now with story out for an extended period of time? Not if you're excluding Christian Arroyo on me. He's the guy, I agree with Bubba. I like that projections, including Bat and Bat X that just came out the day we're recording here, double his home run output in 50% more plate appearances or less than 50% more plate appearances, actually. So they like him to continue to develop a little more power and everything else was great. And he had double digit home runs in his little over 400 plate appearances in 2022 so i think this probably solidifies his playing time i agree with everything bubba said my hope when i saw this on the outline was my initial thought was i'm gonna say maybe elvis andrews signs between the time we record and the time we release the episode and i'm gonna say yes the answer is elvis andrews because i agree with that 100 as well that is the move they need to make i think for now if we don't see anything else, and Enrique Hernandez is going to get his playing time one way or another anyway. This 
probably solidifies that if he needed it. I'm not sure he did. He works his way into the lineup when healthy on a near daily basis anyway. Yeah, not really. It's Christian Arroyo and Enrique Hernandez for now, their playing time is solidified. And Arroyo's probably gets a bit of a boost. And that should remain even if they do bring in a shortstop from the outside, which I think we are all in agreement they probably should. Yeah, I'm under that assumption as well. And anybody who may be looking like deeper into the Red Sox roster, hoping that they might have somebody come up and fill that hole from the minor leagues, there's not really anybody ready to go. You have Sedane Raphael, who has done well for himself in Double A, but I do not think that the Red Sox are in a point where they're going to be forcing anybody jump to jump up over AAA just so they can have a new a top prospect coming up and being on that open day roster. So yeah, I'm on the Elvis Andrews train as the opening day shortstop for the Red Sox. The thing is, Andrews is going to be the opening day something for somebody. More than likely, it'll be a shortstop. I could see him signing playing and playing second base somewhere that really needs it. But I do think he's played himself into a, a situation where he's going to find a starting job before spring training. All right, guys, we're going to we have a lot more news to talk about. We are going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. All right, we're back. Get right back into it, Kevin. To go back to the Tigers, they pulled off a little bit of a trade, a five player trade with the Phillies where Detroit acquired Nick Matan. Matt Verling and Donnie Sands, while Philadelphia adds to their bullpen with Gregory Soto and Cody Clemens. Talk to me about your thoughts on the bullpens happening here. Is the Philadelphia bullpen so much of a mess that you're avoiding it completely? Or are you willing to take multiple darts on the Gregory Soto, Craig Kimbrell, Sir Anthony Dominguez of the world? No, it already was a mess prior to <laughs> yeah. this. And I don't think my my prospectus here is going to change it all i think i have grabbed alvarado late in a spot or two in dcs and i think that's probably where i stay i think that the other guys go quite a bit earlier and there's just too much risk of who's going to get the saves here i think in fab leagues put in any of the guys that aren't drafted on your watch list and keep an eye out and see how this unfolds throughout the season. I'm still under the thought that Kimbrell gets the first shot, but then now second shot, is it Sir Anthony Dominguez? Is it Gregory Soto? Is it Alvarado who I mentioned? And I think a mess is even messier here. And I'm going to continue to avoid the situation if I can. And just put the new, especially NFBC, right? Now our watch list goes to all our leagues. And I think the watch list actually always did, but we can use it in more situations now. They've made those adjustments for NFBC fab, which is amazing. But put put every one of these guys on your watch list so that in your leagues where they are available, you continue to notice that each week as the situation plays out. But at, for earlier draft picks, the first couple guys coming off the board, I'm not worth, I'm not taking this risk when I'm really only looking at these guys for saves, right? These aren't the types of closers that, or relievers sure. that I will use if they're not getting saves. I'd rather use Brian Abreu than any of these guys, and I can get him later than most of them. So it's something where these are the types of releaser, relievers we only want if they're getting saves. So I'm not interested until we have a pretty good idea of who that's going to be. Yeah, I'm still of the opinion that the Phillies want 
Alvarado to be the guy only because this is last year of arbitration and he has and he racks up the saves, whatever he's going to get paid on free agency, not so much in arbitration. Where Gregory Soto, Sir Anthony Dominguez, they've still got a couple of years left on that. And Soto's already got some saves under his belt. So he's already going to bring up his price tag a little bit. Kimbrel is Kimbrel. Sure, maybe that's who they really want just for name recognition and sell tickets or I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what you want, Craig Kimball, at this point. So my those are my top two guesses as far as who they want to take the job. It's not going to cost them any more for them to do that in the long term. But I think production is going to end up dictating exactly who gets that. Bubba, let's talk about Detroit. The void of Gregory Soto opens up the bullpen there. I we. There's already been some major discussion on who everybody thinks is going to be there. Are you of the opinion that Alex Lang is that guy? During We had two drafts going on in our listener leagues. You guys were in one. I was in the other. And as soon as the news broke, we were at pick 174. The guy who picked 174 did not pick Lang. I was at 175, and I scooped him up. <laughs> well above his ADP for obvious reasons. I, it also worked with my roster just because I had waited on relief pitching in, in this draft a little bit more than I had in others. So I was able, I was willing to double down on a couple of darts later on the bite. Is Lang your guy, your guess? And did I jump the gun? Did I shoot a little too quick at 175 in a 12-teamer? The ADP is, to me, yet to be determined on him because you took him around the Soto realm where people would start to, to go for Soto. So I'm fine with that. And yes, Lang is the guy I'm looking at. There's definitely, like, it bums me out because I was taking him late in, in PC 50s and stuff, thinking, okay, this is the guy because eventually Soto's either going to walk too many or something's going to take place. I think Lang's very dominant, big time strikeout arm, does walk too many guys also. That's something to keep in mind. But this is Detroit. How many games are they going to win? Big question. I don't think he jumped the gun, but Lang would be the guy I have circled for now. We've seen from time to time that Detroit will move pieces around there and get other options, but they said that before, and in the end, Soto still was the guy. No matter how good or bad he was, mm-hmm. they stuck with him. So I think Lang's the guy you want to get for sure. Yeah, Soto still had 30 saves last year on a bad Detroit team. And it yeah. said, I'll just echo what I've heard a lot of other people say. It's like, sometimes when you're that bad, <laughs> close the games. games you do win are very close, exactly. So as long as you have a single guy getting all the saves, it's, a, it's still a viable bullpen to be watching. Is there... Especially with the wall, is there any of these hitters are you interested in, in the even in the deepest of leagues, or is this not something that interests you just because it is Detroit? It doesn't interest me a ton. Like you got to be in a really deep league. A lot of this is probably more streamer viability. Sands the catcher shows some decent offensive skills, not a lot of power. You got Haas and you got Rogers there, so maybe if some injuries take place, all of a sudden in a deep league is an option. Nick Maton's a decent utility guy. You're not going to run with him a ton, but he's still super. He's only going to be 26 this year, so. It depends on playing time there. He's platooning at the moment, but could run into some everyday playing time there. We saw a little bit of a little, I, I want to emphasize little speed with Maton, but also a decent hitting a bad average skills in the minors. The guy that's kind of interesting, and Mike Curlin brought it up in a chat with me and the guys this morning, and then he tweeted it out, or on, I should say Thursday morning for those listening on Sunday, sorry. And he made, he tweeted it out. He's really made some second half adjustments at the plate. And he had six homers and stole seven bags for the Phillies last year in 117 games. Projections in fewer games have him for doing seven and seven on the bad X, which is really nice hitting 250. If he runs into regular playing time potentially in Detroit, which could be a thing because it is Detroit, he's young. They traded for him for a reason. He's like, to me, out of the three hitters, he's the best piece of the pie that came over. I'm intrigued with him. Like in a deeper DC 50, I'd be taking a chance on a Matt Vero because there's going to be a point in the season where I think he's very viable for you. And if he catches fire, he's so young, and maybe these new adjustments to the plate panned out, 
he becomes like a 15 home run guy. And maybe he steals 15 bags in a full season. Because right now projections haven't played like 75, 80 games. What if he plays 140 games? Now now it gets really interesting with Matt Vera. It's a big what if. It's Detroit. But he'd be the one out of the three that intrigues me. Yeah, it'd be somebody I'm going to be watching, especially in my daily league, daily moves leagues, yeah, where I time. can make a, I can see where he's playing on the road, see what kind of matchups he's got going on. He was my kind of dark horse choice for NL Rookie of the Year last year, just because I thought he was going to get a lot more playing time in that Philadelphia outfield because he was literally the only outfielder who could play outfield for the Phillies. But obviously that didn't happen. We'll see how much time he gets in Detroit as he kind of battles for playing time, maybe with Akil Badu and the rest of that outfield that could be getting platooned. All right. The app, I kind of alluded to this guy a little bit earlier, and this is one of the sadder notes, but I feel like we got to talk about it. Of course, Liam Hendricks will be missing quite some time, if not the entire season, as he goes under treatment for non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And we, of course, our hearts go out in thoughts and go out to him and his family as he battles that. And as everybody who knows him better has mentioned he's a fighter, he's a good guy, and he's going to be, he's going to fight this and he's going to come out on the other side stronger than ever. But for now, we cannot trust him to be playing baseball for the foreseeable future. Bubba, who are the White Sox going to be leaning on at the back end of that bullpen to fill that very important role at the end of games? Yeah, hopefully it's a quick recovery for Liam. I'm expecting next season because my dad just went through something similar about a six-month chemo deal. He's good now, apparently, but it drains him. So I'd be shocked if he if he's playing at all this year. I don't think you should. Just be with your family, do your thing. But that's a whole other podcast. But for the White Sox side of things, he's going to look at Kendall Graveman. That's why he was a big-time closer in the past, so on and so forth. Could be a great angle to go to. He's probably the front runner for now as we record in the middle of January. A lot could shake out in spring training with Graveman. And you got to also think about there was rumors of Liam Hendricks being traded, so why would they not trade Graveman? There's those options on the table, too. What I would look at if you're in a deeper draft and want to be creative, Aaron Bummer had stuff at one point in time that people thought would be the next closer for the White Sox. That'd be a guy to look at. The guy I have circled, though, and again, this is where the Bummers, of you get your early draft values, now they're going to go away. Ronaldo Lopez is a dude I love in the back end of that bullpen. We saw last year, because we always knew we had great stuff. It was just, could he put it together for five or six innings and multiple times through the lineup and walked, and it just it always became a mess. So what do we do with guys like that? We throw him into a longer role in the bullpen. He flourished. He was amazing. Two inning rolls or whatever. Velocity looked great. Getting strikeouts. Got the job done. Got in, got out. Perfect for Ronaldo. Why couldn't he close them? Why couldn't you throw him in there for one inning? Because he was filthy. Like He looked like yes. the Ronaldo we wanted him to look like. In those shorter roles, shorter roles, yeah. Throw him in the back end of that bullpen, and it's very interesting. You can still get him very cheap in drafts right now. So that's the guy I'd have circled. I think Graveman is the front runner just because of pedigree and name value per se. But I think there's a great chance at some point in time we see Bummer's a long, a dark horse. But I think it needs to be Ronaldo Lopez, and that's who I'd be going for right now in drafts. That'd be the target for me. Yeah, when he was coming in and going one, two, three innings, and he was just dominating in those short stints. All anybody was talking about was like, now if he can just stretch that out, if they can just stretch that out to five or six innings, and obviously that did not work out. But yeah, I hear what you're saying. It's why stretch him out if what he's producing in those short stints can be more valuable, especially since he has, he's converted starter. If you might even have the longevity to rack up 100 innings rather than 70 innings throughout the course of the season in a relief role. And that would be pretty, pretty valuable on a 
pretty decent White Sox team here. Kevin, with Hendricks going out, we, we talked about Hendricks a couple of weeks ago just with the rumors of him being traded and what kind of impact that might have in your draft strategy. But with him leaving completely the draft boards, at least in the first 20 rounds or so, what kind of impact do you think this is going to have on drafts in general? Does it ultimately push up the highest end closures even more than we've already seen in these gladiators first round, second round and in draft champions that have been going in the second and third round as well. Or do you see the market getting scared and taking chances on later options? No, in draft champions, they're, they're not, they're on average going in the second round, but they're going in the first round at times as well. It is crazy. When I look at draft champions, ADP since December 1st, there have been 25 drafts and Edwin Diaz, I guess it's been just outside the first round, but Class A has been taken in the first round. I don't think those two guys move up any further. They were already being taken ahead of Liam Hendricks. Josh Hader slightly ahead as well, but Liam Hendricks was right there as the fourth closer off the board in the middle of the third round with a 38 ADP. Kind of crazy. Last year, we saw this during draft champions. We didn't have gladiators. And the, some of the speculation, and uh, including myself, I thought this will come back a little bit in, in fab leagues. This is because we don't get to do moves during the season, but it didn't. They stayed up there through all of draft season. And now this year, with the addition of the gladiator drafts, we saw those first round picks on closers that you mentioned. And it seems to that moved everybody up. But even in these draft champions leagues, there's all these guys going in right at that one-two turn and then in, in the third round for Hendricks there. The Knicks closer off the board, still the 15th pitcher overall. That's what's crazy about this season. Just side note here, the starting pitching has moved down. The closers have remained or moved up even a little bit over what we were seeing last season. We have Jordan Romano as the fifth Closer off the board, 15th overall pitcher off the board, five of the first 15. And with Hendricks, we were talking four of the top 11 pitchers being drafted in draft champions are closers. Crazy. So I don't think that the top two or three guys move up. Maybe Romano creeps up a little bit from his 45 ADP to more solidly in that third round, middle of the third round where Hendricks was. And then Devin Williams and on down the line, they may creep up a little bit, but the top two or three guys can't get any higher than they already are. Unless we're going to start talking about early first round closers, which I don't think we get to that point. <laughs> Let's hope not. I don't know that's a conversation we're ready to have. But I, we're still adjusting to early first round starters for what a lot of us are used to, <laughs> let alone we throw relievers in there. Yeah, I'll be interested to just kind of watch the ADP kind of change over the course of the next couple of weeks as obviously it'll change drastically come March. But like, the, I wonder if this ends up scaring people away from being as aggressive with the Diaz's, with the haters, with the guys that are going right above or at that point that Hendricks was going, knowing this is a, this is the first, second, third round pick that you don't lose so much. You lose them for any stretch of time. You lose a lot of that value of that pick. Obviously, anything could happen to any player at any time. We know that. But this is a situation that, it, like you said, is pretty new, at least to the degree that we've been seeing in drafts over the course of the last 
to maybe three years. All right, let's a couple of smaller signings have happened in the outfield of different teams, Kevin. We got AJ Pollock signing in Seattle for a one-year deal. Adam Angle signs a one-year deal with San Diego. And then Corey Dickerson enters the fray of the Washington Nationals outfield. His eighth team of his career, good for him. I think he gets a punch ticket. Him and Lewin Diaz have, have something in common. I had to get a Lewin Diaz shot in there somehow. Jeez, six team. I don't even know. Anyway, we're not talking about Lewin Diaz. Of these three guys, though, are any of them of interest to you with their new teams as a possible fourth or fifth outfielder, depending, considering the depth of outfield has been in such question throughout the course of the offseason? Well, probably not. With the exception of maybe Corey Dickerson, who's probably in line for the most playing time, at least to start the season, the way things look now. San Diego's lineup all of a sudden is pretty darn crowded when a month or so ago we were talking about, oh, this is an amazing top half, top two thirds of the lineup. They shore this up with a couple more signings then they really have something here. And it's been quiet. But all of a sudden, it's full. And it, it appears to me that I know Roster Resource has Matt Carpenter in left field. Don't think that's probably what we're going to see. I think we see almost a fairly platoon. Matt Carpenter and Lee Cruz, who they just signed in the DH spot. Cruz has notoriously his entire career He's crushed lefties even in his down 2022 and about half the number of plate appearances versus lefties. He had the same amount of home runs, right? We've always known he's great against lefties. We can get Carpenter in there versus righties. And then does that open up a spot for Engel to play more than just as a backup? Possibly, but it, it's going to be hard to tell. And they still may not be done. Jerks and Profar are still out there. They could bring him back. I think the only one that at the moment I'm comp Pollock has been not himself, but he still crushes lefties. Wrong side of a platoon for us to care about. Even with me saying I'm more worried in quality plate appearances than just looking at straight plate appearances that ruffled a few feathers. The short side of a platoon doesn't get it done. So not much interest there either. He has still been very good versus lefties even during his decline. So he's coming, becoming more of a specialist versus left-handed pitching. So that leaves us Dickerson probably going to get the most playing time of the three been great in streaks throughout his career when healthy, that just doesn't happen much anymore. So I, he's the one I'll keep my eye on. But at this point, I'm still probably not drafting him. All right. You mentioned that Nelson Cruz signed a one-year deal. I think it's a one-year, $1 million with San Diego. So I'm just going to blend these two news items in together as I kick it over to you, Bubba. Along with Cruz, as far as the DH options go, Brandon Belt signed with the Blue Jays as well. So lump all these guys together. Which one of, do you see any of these signings displacing any of the other current current guys? Maybe San Diego notwithstanding, because Kevin touched on that quite a bit. But between Pollock in, in Seattle's outfield option, Vernon Bell taking a good chunk of the DH options out of out of the Blue Jays. Is there any kind of trickle effect that you're seeing from these signings with their current rosters? Roster resources AJ Pollock as the DH right now, which is actually kind of doable if you look at their roster. I don't love it by any means, but it's doable because the one thing with all these rosters, I was looking at it before the show, their benches aren't great. So it's just like an injury away from almost all of these guys having regular playing time, which is not the, as you can tell in my voice, not the most warm and fuzzy thing. But uh, Pollock, we've at least seen with regular playing time. Again, health, always an issue there. He can be productive. He can be very productive. 
So he's a guy that is interesting, not in love with it, but interesting with AJ Pollock. I have no no desire for Adam Engel for everything that was mentioned already. And honestly, with the Padres, I'll, I know you said don't talk too much, but I will mention one thing about the Padres. Don't be surprised if Matt Carpenter plays the outfield. He shouldn't, but the Yankees played him out there, and the Padres, they played Jorge Alfaro out there. So they will play anybody out there if all things considered. So keep that in mind. I think they want Nelly Cruz to play every day if he's healthy. I, it makes sense to platoon Cruz and Carpenter, but again, Nelly had the eye issue. He had the surgery. If, quote-unquote, if he is healthy again, the boomstick can rake in that offense, and why would you want to platoon that if it's such a big if? Big question. Back to your thing. Corey Dickerson seems to be the guy, if healthy. Like I streamed him a lot last year when they had those weeks where they faced all right-handed pitching. He's great in those scenarios. He crushes right-handed pitching. That's what Corey Dickerson does. He'll platoon otherwise, but strong side of the platoon. Last but not least, Brandon Belt. Love the giraffe. Love the baby giraffe. I'm glad he's out of town. Good for him, actually. Like, I'm happy for him to go play in a real ballpark that actually rewards left-handed power. Problem is, like the reports came out that he's going to be like the primary DH slash let Daddy get some days off. I don't see that because you still have Kirk and Jansen. Why would you want to, like, you need both those guys in the lineup. So I'm confused on what they're going to do there. If he is the primary DH, great spot for Brandon Bell. Phenomenal spot for Brandon Bell. I still have a lot of reservations about that. Reservations. that way. But uh, I guess if you have to narrow it all down, I think I like Cruz the most here. I'm a believer on a little bounce back for Cruz. And he's literally, as of our recording, his ADP is like past 600 in draft champions over the last three weeks. That's obviously going to change. But if you're in drafts really soon, why not take that chance? Why not? He should be at least in the 400s by by main draft season. So I'd be going Cruz in this group if I had to pick somebody. Yeah, Cruz's signing is like the one where you hope you're already in the 500s in yep. a current draft when you hear the news happen and you just cross your fingers that nobody else saw it. And then hopefully it gets to your pick and you can take advantage of that before the ADP skyrockets up. Yeah, I think the only thing with Cruz is that you only got $1 million. So it's like at the very least, the Padres, yeah, if he's raking, of course they want him in the lineup as much as possible. But monetarily, there's nothing yeah, holding true. him in a position. And then, of course, when Tatis comes back, you got to assume that he's taking over left field and not shortstop. Who knows if he he takes some time at second base, maybe? Who, know, who knows if he's even healthy enough? I know he's doing, he's got baseball activities. He's been approved for those right now. So that's a step in the right direction. But you have to assume he's, he's going to be taking up an outfield spot if healthy come the end of his suspension in mid-April. Exactly. All right, a couple pitchers signed with new teams. I'm going to lump these two together for you guys as well. Johnny Cueto, he signed a one-year deal with the Miami Marlins. And then the A's added to their rotation, apparently, Japanese import Shintaro Fujinami. I hear a lot of notes about Fujinami being... And I think we talked about him, Kevin, a couple months ago, actually, about being a probable reliever. But all notes are saying that he will join the A's rotation upon his signing. Kevin, I'll start with you here. I mean, or take whatever direction you want to go in here, but we say that we're interested in the A's rotation just because of the Coliseum, but at what point do you draw the line on that? Is Fujinami in that or out of that? I think if we were interested in Kyle Muller, and we were a little bit, I think when we talked about him a couple of weeks and a couple of these other guys that it seems like this starting rotation has been a bit of a merry-go-round here this offseason every time a guy gets bumped if we were slightly interested in them theoretically we should be interested in the guy that that's bumping them i there's some intrigue here however it's coming back i yes oakland pitchers can give us nice ratios because it's a great ballpark 
and in the right matchups, definitely be on my radar. But in general, chasing wins and an Oakland A's pitcher is not going to do that for us. The, those two things don't go together. No. Bob in Miami, are you interested in Cueto after especially what he's done in the last year or two with, with his various spots? And what's Miami doing with that rotation? That's the big thing. I'm interested in Cueto. I'm, I'm not expecting what he did last year, obviously, but he can eat innings up. He can pitch in a really good ballpark, as we know, in Miami now. So that, that's a plus. You're not going to want to use him all the time like when he walks into Citizen Bank or something. Probably not going to go throw him out on the mound on that. But he can be a streamable guy or in a deep league. You could have some fun with Cueto. What they're doing is they're opening the door for all the Pablo Lopez rumors. That just really secured that one. He mentioned the Luis Arias thing. Max Kepler's rumored to be in that to Miami. We know up, up north in the New York area, there's rumors of Pablo Lopez. I believe in Boston might have been involved in the Pablo Lopez discussions. So it seems like this just escalates the, hey, he might be gone here sooner than later thing, which is surprising, but I guess I get it. Last year, I was kind of off him because of the shoulder concerns. He proved me wrong, but shoulder's a shoulder. And if there was concerns at one point, who knows when that's going to tick up again. It's like a sell high where you can if you're Miami. Michelle Ng did come out and say that, hey, I'm not, or Kim, sorry, said that I'm still, we're still not done yet. So that basically says Pablo's going somewhere and the Cueto signing kind of expedites that, I should say. Yeah, that's when you heard her say that or read her say that, and you're like, all right, there's something that's pretty much done deal here. They also said that pretty much four out of the five members of the rotation were pretty much up for grabs in trade talks. So we'll see if Lopez ends up being the one or if they go in a different direction. They did make, Miami did make an actual trade, not for a pitcher or not involving a pitcher, but they sent Miguel Rojas to the Dodgers for infielder Jacob Amaya. Bubba, what impact do you see this having on both Rojas and the Dodgers infield as a whole. I think it's a great move for them, which really hurt to say at this point in time, but it brings it all home. Miggy Rose started with, with the Dodgers back in 14 or something like that. I think I saw it tweeted out. And I know he's talked about it in the past, how much he loves it there, that, that franchise. So that's awesome for him. He's a good dude. And it's when they need a shortstop. They lost, uh, they lost Seager. They lost Trey Turner. It's like every year, it's like they lose a shortstop. Now you got a gold glove caliber shortstop. And it moves Gavin Lux back to second base potentially. There are reports that Miggy, Miguel Rojas might play third base also, which then where does that put Max Muncy? Does he go back to second? Lux stays at short. You have Chris Taylor. I know you asked me to answer this for you. I'm just throwing out the scenarios. Though. <laughs> this is going much, somewhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a gigantic what-if situation. And if all if any team can make this more confusing, it is Dave Roberts and Los Angeles Dodgers. Sure. This is what they love to do. So he's the perfect piece for them. I think what I'm going into drafts thinking right now is start stumps Rojas, third base is Muncy. Second base is Lux. Chris Taylor is a platoon dude. That's what I'm thinking right now. That's where Taylor has flourished in the past. There's still question marks. Taylor could play center because you want Trace Thompson and James Outman out there all the time. I don't know. So that's thing. Or do you put Gavin Lux in center and put Chris Taylor at second? The main thing you need is Muncie, Rojas, Lux, Taylor. That's kind of the four I'm focused on. That's where I think their playing time's going. And I think it's a good baseball move for the Dodgers. And it, it elevates Rojas's fantasy value, honestly depending on where they put him in the lineup. But we've seen him be able to get on base at a decent clip. Now you're on a team to score a ton of runs. Like, I'm not saying he's a must-draft, but he definitely becomes at least viable in certain formats that he wouldn't have been before sitting in Miami. Yeah, I'll be interested to see where Rojas ends up in the lineup. So, you know, be following 
Mike Crone's lineup trackers during spring training to see how he's being utilized in that lineup as well. But of that bunch, yeah, I see Rojas as being the one with the most playing time of the grouping you just gave between Lux and Taylor and Rojas, maybe Muncy as well. But Muncy's going to need a time off here or there unless he's 110% healthy from what we saw him last year. Yeah, I can see Rojas gaining the most amount of play appearances I got over one more thing, the other three guys. That does get interesting. I didn't mention him, but I, for, I forgot to. Might mean Miguel Miguel Vargas is not starting anywhere near the team. And that's the bummer for many people because we've known the pop he showed in the minors. Didn't really get a good run last year. He's kind of in and out, in and out. And it felt like this might be his chance this year based on the openings before this trade. This could put him on the back burner for a bit as well, which the Dodgers don't care. They love having depth in the minors. But that's something to monitor as well. This is exactly how they treated Gavin Lux when he was coming up. It took him forever to actually come up and get... The, anything that resembled regular playing time when everybody was calling for that, calling for him to be up and play every day at second base. Yeah, J.D. Martinez is clogging up that DH spot as well, so you don't have that as much flexibility in there. I don't see Martinez playing every day at DH for them. They're still going to get Will Smith a couple of extra bats. Max Muncy's going to get in there as well, but pretty much Trey Freeman and Mookie Betts are the only ones that have a solid position and job seven days a week for the Dodgers. Back in Miami, Kevin, this they made some waves when they signed Gene Segura, but with Miguel Rojas out of the picture, how's this infield looking for Miami as far as you see it? I think it brings Joey Wendell back into more plate appearances, whether he's third and Segura is short or vice versa. I think that's the first thing that I see. I think in general, when we're looking for stolen bases, this brings more into the play player pool. Wendell can steal double digits. This could also mean more starts for John Birdie. This Miami lineup is, I know, because I'm going to say some things that's going to make everybody groan, but if Garrett Cooper, Abacel Garcia, and Jorge Soler come out of spring training healthy, this lineup, Segura, Jazz, Cooper, Garcia, Soler, Brian De La Cruz, Wendell now, they got Stallings, but I know a lot of us like Nick Fortes' bat better when he's in the lineup. Jesus Sanchez showed a couple of flashes last season that he still could be viable, especially if they're only counting him at the bottom of the lineup now and not in the middle. That's Birdie's still available. Fortes, I mentioned. Blade on the bench. Still some hope for him. All of a sudden, Miami's lineup is not horrible. I almost want to say pretty darn good. I'm stopping short of that. Almost. Uh, because yeah. there's... <laughs> No way all of these guys are healthy too much into the season, I don't think. But for now, all of a sudden, this looks great. So guys like Wendell, guys like Birdie that are going to get more playing time, more stolen base opportunities, the lineup's better. That means more runs and RBI that we typically don't count on from these guys. So I think just in general, overall, it, I'm more interested in these Marlins players at, without thinking I'm sacrificing too much in other categories when typically we're just looking for stolen bases from a couple of them. And it gives me that also boosts the counting stats for the guys that are being drafted earlier, like Jazz Chisholm. So yeah, overall, I think this gives everybody a bit of a boost here. Just the Marlins lineup in general, I think being better overall than many people might realize. You said that 
early on, you said that it probably adds more stolen bases to the pool, if you will. I will be interested to see what Skit Schoemaker, the new manager of the Marlins, does in spring training. That's one of the, one of those trends and stats you can watch in spring training that will actually carry over into the regular season. It is how aggressive is a team being on the base path and who are they using in those situations? Obviously, there's a lot of noise that comes out of spring training, but we've seen that how teams act on the base pass in spring training carries over at least into the early part of the season in April. So see what his plan of attack is there. And if he's the type that just, hey, I've got fast guys on my team, I'm going to let them run. We said that about Matheny. He's not, he's not really a guy that wants to run, but give him guys who can run and he will take advantage of the talent pool in which he was given. So it'd be interesting. It's, I feel like we say that, you said this, about not you, but we as a community have said this about Miami for years. Miami should be good. Like Miami is looking much better. And they're still in the analyst. And they so don't have to score a mind. ton of runs. They no, just... not thinking. <laughs> yeah. yeah. They're pesky, man. They're annoying pesky ball club that can put it together. Like I'm with Kevin on that. Like Cooper's a guy I'm a big fan of. So just stay healthy. Just stay healthy. At one point last year, Miami and Baltimore were the teams that everybody wanted to talk about in the middle of the season, making runs in their division. Hopefully we'll see the same thing this year. It's good for All baseball. Right. It is good for baseball. Absolutely. And that's what we're here for. I think we hit on pretty much everything that's come across to this. That's been official. A lot of rumors out there. We'll hit on those when they become actually official. But now we need to talk about some actual strategy, talking about some roster construction in our drafts. Like I mentioned, Bubba did one of our On The Wire listener leagues with Kevin that just concluded just a couple of days ago. So we'll talk to him about that and what was going through his mind as he was drafting and what he thinks he'll be doing differently throughout the course of the draft season as it continues to roll along. We'll get to that after this quick break. All right, we are back. You are still listening to On The Wire. I am Adam Howe, joined as always by Kevin Hasting. We are lucky to be joined by Bubba, Casey Bubba himself, Brian Entrick of Gaining The Edge Fantasy. Make sure you're following that on the Twitter as well. But Bubba, you just completed your the On The Wire Listener League 4, fourth one that we've completed. We had two that kicked off on January 5th, and they pretty much concluded at the same time. So that was good that we were keeping the same pace. How many other drafts have you done before this one? And then how many drafts do you think you will complete by, by the end of March? So the three Gladiator drafts that completed, I had... I- I think four NFBC, I was finishing my fourth NFBC 50 while this was going on. And that's about it. I've been doing one at a time and then dabbling in a few others. So that's where I'm at on these. I'll probably do a handful of 50s, a few more NFBC 50s. I'll do three to four OCs. And obviously I'll have like BARF and I just told you uh, TGFBI, stuff like that. But I don't think I'll have too many more families. I'm really trying to limit the fab. I might sure. do one more on the wire. I got two on the wires last year. I will probably do another one of those or... Um, I've, I got people wanting to do leagues too, so I don't know what's going on. It gets, it's up in the air, but I always tell myself I'm not going to do them, and then I'm a sucker for when people ask me because I like the people. So it's just one of those things. I know I'll do three to four OCs, that's for sure, and a couple of 50s because that's what gets me ramped up for my OCs. gets me another player pool, gets me in that world, and just kind of gets me focused. So that's the plan for now. That's the beauty of our listener leagues, right? They're yep. literally the same as the online championships, the 12-teamers, FAB, 30 rounds, et cetera, on the NFBC platform. We do have openings in two new leagues I just opened up. Just saying there are I'm going to wait a little bit. I want to yeah. spread, spread them out as a different ADP <laughs> kind of thing. If I'm doing oh, sure. Wise, I'm, 
I want to spread them out a little bit more. Yeah. Well, anybody else listening, we check out our highly recommend it. Yes. Check out the pin tweet and there's a pre-registration form link on there. We have openings for a draft that we should kick off February 15th and openings in one. I think it's a March 20th. I opened up ones on there. Maybe I'll sign up for March 20th. There There you go. You guys got me. You guys got me. (laughs) (laughs) Hook, line, and sinker. For drafting. You guys got me. But all right, so here's what I'm hearing from you, though, is a good chunk, a good percentage of the leagues that you'll be doing this year, 12 teamers. So you got your 50s, you got your OCs. Like you said, you're going to be doing, you got your Barf League, which is a 15 teamer. Kevin and I are in the other two other ARF leagues, TGFBI 15 teamer. But is that by design? Are you more focused on the 12 teamers? And then when you do have to make that adjustment into the 15 teamers, what are you doing? Uh, what are you doing? 12 is my preferred route. Some might say it's because I'm not, they don't have the bandwidth in my brain to do 15s, but I like to have fun playing fantasy baseball and I like having fun looking teams, call it what you wish. And more importantly, unlike the 15s, I like the strategy of 15s. Don't get me wrong. I love the strategy of 15s, but I don't have the time of, the, of my day to put the work in that's necessary for that many 15s because you have to dig deep. I like when a guy gets injured or whatnot that I can go on a 12-team waiver wire and at least find something serviceable more often than not. On a 15, you're just begging for anything with a pulse sometimes. And that kind of takes the fun out of it for me. It could be me. Like I know Toby and Weimer and all these guys are phenomenal 15-team players. Phenomenal. And they love it. And they love the grind of finding that guy no one knows about. That's not me. So I know what I like and I try to stay in my 12 team wheelhouse and I really enjoy it. I mean, I think that's key, right? It's like knowing what you like and trying to do that the best of your capability and then sharing your knowledge with other people so they can make the decision based on what they know about themselves. We talked about this all the time. Like you got to know, Kevin, you're talking about this with the Colorado Rockies hitters. Yeah, you can platoon Rockies hitters to get all their home games and none of their away games, but you've got to put the work into finding that platoon partner on your fantasy roster to do that, right? You got to know whether or not you're willing to put in that work. We talked about this with Steve Weimer, like one of the hardest working fantasy players out there. He will outwork you. If you know you're in a league with him, you got to know about yourself. Are you going to be doing that? Or are you going to draft accordingly? Yeah. You talked about having a fun team and you don't, not necessarily wanting to find the guy deep, deep on the wire. And you want to make sure that you're not having to worry about that. So how is that affecting how you draft Bubba, even in a 12-teamer, are you focused on specific stats, categories, or positions? Like, Or are you building your team in such a way where you're not having to worry about finding the fab guys as much or not relying on that? Talk to me about like the strategy that you put forth to build the team with that in mind. I think it's safe to say that all of our goal is to never have to use the fab because we have the best team created ever. <laughs> but uh, I think that's the goal in place. That's what those happen. draft grades are for, right? That's yeah, what those draft grades are always for. Yeah. the lowest grade possible, please. But uh, yeah, it's just like you want to avoid injuries. Like I, I'm not a very risk drafter and that can be a problem of mine. I've tried to develop like, where should I start taking risks? Because obviously, in a lot of these like OCs, you have an overall competition. Most of your entry money goes to the overall, not to your league. So it's like, maybe I need to be more take chances, go for boom or bust, where instead of finishing fifth, stuff like that. And that's the beauty of our game is we learn and adapt from what we've done in the previous years to, to make a better player in the future. And so when I'm drafting this year right now, I'm still trying to do my balanced approach early and go with quote unquote safer plays, boring plays, as some would say. But then I'm taking more chances in those middle rounds. That's where I'm starting. I'm willing to gamble more. Like in this on the wire draft, it was a completely different start than I've done in any other draft I've had this entire season because I wanted to see where it went. I was really curious. 
And the fact that this was my first fab league would allow me to go to the wire if I needed to make adjustments. Where like in a draft and hold format, there ain't no fab folks. So you really better be happy with the strategy and how it turns out worthy on the wire. Like I could take chances because I love, you guys mentioned earlier, pitching's going so late. William 12 teamer is even more pitching going late. So I was way more aggressive on hitters and five category hitters. And I usually am in drafts. We'll see how it goes and kind of stuff like that. So the goal is not to have to go to the wire, but it's also knowing what will be potentially on the wire, at least to start the season. I think we're all aware of that. They might have, especially drafting this early, someone's going to win a job out of spring training that we didn't expect. That guy will be on the wire. You'll have more relievers questions. Those guys will be on the wire. You'll have extra starters you can potentially stream on the wire, like so on and so forth that you can do out there. But one thing I'm trying to draft to not stream as much pitching as possible this year, if I can, if I can. Yeah, listen to our last pod with Nick Pollock. We talked about streaming pitching, and he put it perfectly. You want to stream pitching so that you don't have to stream pitching anymore early in the season. Like The goal is to not do that <laughs> all season long because it is such a – that's a grind. Just use the word grind. I also appreciate all the plugs to our show that you used in that last – you said on the wire probably about six or seven times in that in one sentence, and I appreciate that. I'm going to use – I'll clip that together and put that on Twitter as a promotional item. Kevin, I'm Kevin – Something I wanted to point out, I put this on the run the last minute. It was something I wanted to talk about because I saw Jeff Zimmerman put out a tweet about how everybody's talking about the first round and that's not really useful. What is, when you're going into drafts, what is your strategy would compare when you're looking at the top 10 rounds versus the bottom 10 rounds? Bubba talked about how he's focused in the middle rounds in certain areas, but are you more interested in what you're going to be doing in the final 10 rounds and your reserve picks and maybe your corner, maybe your, your ninth pitcher on your roster? Or are you letting the first 10 rounds dictate where that goes? I have a plan in that first 10 rounds, but everybody's got a plan. We all know that's saying, <laughs> Until you right? don't. Yep. Yeah. And the... <laughs> But I think what is really intriguing to me this season, we've talked about it for years. We talk about it, especially when the main events come up in late March, right before the season starts. We talk about ADP going out the window. I'm really trying to do that right now. A ADP out the window. Because I think what we what happens is you we all say we're not slaves to ADP. But you look at any draft you may be in the middle of right now. And if you're at pick, say, 300, there's probably only roughly 20 or less players not ranked in the top 300 on that site that hasn't been picked yet, right? Most of those guys are injured. Like we do, our drafts follow ADP. Whether we think we do personally or not, our drafts do. And I think we get sucked into our player pool per round. We shrink it. And we think these are the guys that have been going in this area. Which one do I like best? Well, as Ron Chandler pointed out, Baseball HQ's forecaster this year, I think it was 85%. 85% of picks made in rounds 11 through 23. So as you said, after the 10th round, after the 10th round, the rest of our starting lineup, we draft for a 23 starting roster. 85% of them don't return value. We're not good at this. In fact, I think his words were, we stink at this, yes. is what he put in the article. I, and I think a lot of that is because we're not taking the players we like. We think we can get them later. So we're going to bump up this guy and take this guy. I might not even like him, but sure, there's potential there and I can still get my guy later. Then you don't because somebody like Bubba comes along and takes him from you. So I think I'm really trying to really focus and follow through on the throwing ADP out the window, especially after that top 
10 rounds. I think for up 120 to 150 picks, there's probably a general consensus of who we like. And of course, it's going to vary more and more the later we get in the draft. So the, the 10th round isn't set in stone of where I'm going to do that. But that's about where it starts happening. I'm really trying that more and more this season. And the ADPs, are. I think other people are doing it as well, which is really going to make the ADPs look absolutely nuts at times, depending on your dates, your search. I had something real quick to what Kevin said, because I was very critical what he said there is you mentioned like 100 to 150 give or take 120 to 150 so 10 to 12 10, 10 rounds give or take and it makes sense because i think what we need to acknowledge is there's so much quality content and smart people playing fantasy now that's why we're all in lockstep it's like it's not foolish to follow the adp especially early on because these are the best of the best like when we're doing our drafts we're sitting there in the eighth round and going man how are these guys still available they're so good because x y and z happened before this and so that makes sense so that's why i like what you said about waiting well, i'm on the same page with you about waiting one thing I'll say is when we look at the ADP, a great thing that I used to look at for it is look at the min and the max because that'll tell you more the story than the actual ADP number. That'll tell you if you're being crazy for jumping or what, something like that. that gives you, I think, more of an idea of when to throw ADP out the window because that's something I'm trying to work on too, Kevin. It's tough because you say you're going to do it and you go into the live draft and you're drafting live and it's like, God, that guy's still sitting there. I want to take this guy, but I told myself I need to go take this guy in round 12, not this guy. Like I need to stick to my plan. But this guy's still sitting here, and then the, thing, the whole thing goes haywire after that. And so that's where it's true. That kind of that idea that you just brought up there is, hey, do I move to this guy, and then I'm not going to get the guy I planned on getting. I'm going to have to make an adjustment later on. It rolls into this next part of the pod that we're going to talk about. Yeah, it's almost as if you planned that. It's almost like you do this on a regular basis. Yeah, I want to talk to you guys. I want to give you guys some examples of some package of players that could have been drafted throughout and i use i used a lot of the draft boards from our four on the wire listener leagues as a kind of a template for what could have been available on in any of these current drafts and how you might have a plan (laughs) to start something and you might have to adjust based on what's available we hear a lot about like how there are certain cliffs at certain positions you need to prioritize certain stats at certain either at positions or in certain parts in the drafts because they all clear up but no matter what, you got to have a. You got to at least go in with a plan, and sometimes that plan changes based on what the room gives you. But I want to get your guys' take as far as if you had a plan, this is the direction you would go in these certain scenarios. So I've got, I think there's six, five or six uh, groupings here of players that went or that could have gone to a certain team throughout one of these drafts, and I'm gonna get you guys' take of which direction you would go and why. So first one here, Bubba, I'll let you lead it off here. The groupings here, I grouped. Corner infielders, Um, so first baseman, third baseman. We hear a lot about third base being a wasteland at a certain point in drafts and whether or not you need to prioritize that position early on. So all things created, everything else being equal in your draft. So the number of pitchers you took, different positions that you might have gone after. If you're only the only variable here is when you take a first baseman versus when you take a third baseman, would you prefer the combination of Freddie Freeman going – Super early, maybe you get him at the top of the second round. It falls out of the first round, but then you, in the twelfth round, you grab somebody like Eugenio Suarez to fill your third base spot. Or would you rather go heavy on third base and get somebody like Austin Riley in the second round, and then wait on somebody like Christian Walker later on? So those are your pairings: Freeman and Suarez versus Riley and Walker. So which direction do you see yourself going if that's a draft decision that you have to make? 
I'm going to get this out of the way now and say these are all really good ideas, like pairing-wise. So they're going to be trickier than that. It's definitely, I think, personal strategy. Obviously, that's the point of the question, but these are really good. So for me, I'm going to go the Austin Riley side of things. Man, this is tricky. Like Nothing against Freddie Freeman. If, if you want stability and consistency and potentially probably more power this year than we got last year, Freddie's a phenomenal pick, a great pick. I have no problem with it at all. But what I'm doing between the two is I'm a believer in Austin Riley. He's done it for two seasons in a row now. He's hit for at least a respectable average. He's not going to hit over 300, 270 to 280. He's got that in him, but he hits the ball so darn hard. And he's going to hit home runs. The lineup's still great. But the kicker for me is Walker versus Suarez. And I have no problem if you waited on third base and take Suarez. Christian Walker, he underachieved so much last year for the way he hit the baseball. For his quality of contact metrics, for his strikeout rates, for his contact rates, you just name it across the board. He should not have. He should have hit like two forty or two fifty. And if he does that with his power, he'll jump Aoyama as words. And that's the difference for me in the two. So I'll go Riley and Walker. Both I'm totally fine leaving either draft room with, but I'll go Riley and Walker. Kevin, I've seen you grab Suarez in a couple drafts that I've draft rooms that I've been in with you. So I'm going to assume that you're going to go with the Freeman Suarez pairing. But enlighten me as to which direction you would end up going. No, actually, I like the other pairing. I agree with Bubba here and you're right. So when I first glanced at this and I did intentionally, I, without looking at any numbers, I picked who I thought I was going to, and it was Freeman and Suarez. You're absolutely right. But according to steamers projections, not with this might not end up where it happens, but for now, just taking a look at this nine points, better batting average between the two. If we take Riley and Walker, 10 more home runs, between the two, almost 30 more RBI between the two and the exact same amount of runs, a handful more stolen bases for Freeman and Suarez. And if we take the two that both Riley and Walker are projected for right now and just make those zero, basically, however many bases Freddie Freeman steals, you're going to have that many more (laughs) stolen bases. But that's the only category that pairing comes out on top on. So this is one of those situations where I actually look at it, and I think Suarez can hit better than 211. Probably not a whole lot, but at 225, 230. So, I, yeah, I have been drafting Suarez. He's probably my favorite third baseman to grab if I don't have one before the Bregman-Gunner drop-off, right? He's a guy that if I miss out on those first seven or eight guys, he's the one I'm targeting later. But for the pairings you gave me, looking at projections and nothing really I strongly disagree with. So I got to lean the Riley Walker. And that's why I picked before and after looking at numbers, because in this instance, right off the bat, the first one changed my mind. Sure. Yeah. Look, Bubba talked about it just now. Like the idea of this exercise is not so much that this is going to be very specific situations that you're going to get in your draft, but it is, but it should make you think about, all right, maybe there is a, a situation or a position that I'm not willing to wait on a little bit longer than I thought I was. You just based on what you could be getting instead or and then what you're going to have to adjust later on if that player or that type of player is not available thanks to your draft room. Let's talk about the idea we talk, we just talked about third base being a wasteland or at least being uh, having that major cliff like you mentioned Kevin. What if you had the idea of, you know what? I'm going to I'm going to water down the pool even more. I'm going to double tap third base early. I'm going to give that one less third base option for the rest of my draft room. I'm going to fill my corner infield spot because you know what? 
that's still a position. The stats that you get in your corner infield roster spot mean just as much as the ones you get in any of the other starting spots. So it is definitely a viable option based on what you think you could get. So let's say, Kevin, you go, no matter what, you go Rafael Devers probably in the second round. But then in a couple of rounds later, you have your choice between Alex Bregman and Xander Bogarts. And you end up going with Bregman, double tap that third base. Then you're, quote, stuck with Jeremy Pena as your starting shortstop later on. Or if you go with Devers and then grab Bogarts as your starting shortstop, then you're, quote, stuck with somebody like Matt Chapman. Maybe you get lucky and you get your boy, Eugenio Suarez. I'm going to use Matt Chapman as the example here. So no matter what, you've got Devers, your starting third baseman, or and then your combination of corner and shortstop is either Bregman and Pena or Bogarts and Chapman. Which direction do you think you'd rather go in? This I don't know if you realize this, Adam, but the projection-wise, these groups are nearly identical. One home run apart, the exact na- exact same number of RBI and runs for each grouping of three, according to what Steamer has projected at this moment. Totally meant Uh, to do that. And and only a three stolen base difference. So my first inclination was the first group, Devers, Bregman, Pena, and the reasoning probably a little bit better batting average. And that's the way this works out. Not a whole lot. The main difference in batting average is just going to be between what we get from Jeremy Pena and Matt Chapman, but that is a little bit of a boost here from a couple of guys that will have plenty of at-bats, so they will influence a little bit. And that was my first inclination. Didn't realize it was going to be as close as it actually (laughs) is. That is amazing how that worked out. But yeah, a little better batting average from the first group, so that's the way I lean. But before you get your take on this, what did your take on the idea of defensive drafting and I talked about that with like watering down a position for the helping yourself at the expense of everybody else in draft room doubling down on a position like third base or going heavy on outfield knowing that's going to hurt the options of the rest of your draft room is that a viable strategy in your draft rooms or is it something that's a little too nuanced for you to really go after I'm a big fan of it if you can pull it off it makes you have to know the player pool even better though because you have to be able to go hey I'm selling out to go take this position when I probably don't need it right now. So I better have a backup plan back here. It's what you're kind of showing here. Like I did it in every gladiator draft I had. I was sitting there thinking, and that's a different format. So obviously you really got to hone in on positions, but I'd like double tap shortstop to like really dilute the pool to the different shortstops or go heavy on the outfielders like you're saying, or double tap and two elite closers really drowned things out, which I wasn't the only one to do that, but that's kind of the same strategy. You can do that in these formats as well. I'm hundred percent on board with that, especially with positions that you think can get weak. Just, don't do it at the expense of your own team, my suggestion. Don't do it just to be think you're being coy. Make sure it actually benefits your team. So know your backup plan, know your strategy. There's a lot of great players that sit there and they pencil out their flow charts, the Jenny Butlers of the world and all these people and have a plan in place that if you are going to do that, if you are going to try to drown out a position, make sure your fallback plan is very serviceable as well. That's fair. So do you feel as though these groupings are a little too equal or would you have a reference, a preference in the trios that I gave? For me, I have a preference, but it's a biasy of mine is I'm going with the Bregman Pena Devers side of things, but it's more so for the fact that I love Xander. Don't get me wrong, but he's just really good average. Okay. Power occasional steal. That's my thing. And my concern with San Diego, I don't think it's talked about enough yet with all those big boppers. How are they spreading out the runs and RBIs? They can't all get 100 RBIs. Like, it's just not going to happen. So who, who takes the hit on this one? That's something to keep in mind. So where do the numbers 
finish in the wash. Are they all 75 RBI guys? Still good. They're that, that what they are. And with Pena, I think he runs a ton. So I think I'm a big fan of that. I think you're getting 15 plus steals potentially. I think he'll sit up there at the top of that Houston order with Altuve in front of Bregman, in front of Jordan. I think he could take another step potentially in the run scored category and the steals. So I take that Pena, Bregman, Denver side of things. That's fair. All right, let's move over to some pitching options here. Remember, preferences, remember that these are 12 teamers. So when I give you rounds here, that's where you're, I'm referencing that. So your choice between going heavy on relievers or your first closer or your, maybe not your first starter, but at least the starter that you would get instead of. So your options here. Bubba, I'll start with you. Edwin Diaz, this is third and 10th round, roughly, in a 12-teamer. You get Edwin Diaz in the third round, and then you grab Kyle Wright, whether he's your SB3 or 4, whatever, but he's in your rotation now. Instead, you could get Brandon Woodruff, probably as your ace in the third round, and then grab somebody like Clay Holmes in the 10th round currently. We'll see if that ADP changes as time goes on. But as of right now, you could get Edwin Diaz and Kyle Wright or Brandon Woodruff and Clay Holmes as your SP slash closer options. With everything that we talked about already, just on this episode about the closer landscape, which direction do you think you're probably going to end up going? This one's pretty easy for me, actually. I'm going with the Woodruff, Clay Holmes side of things. Two reasons. Closers vary so much year to year. Edwin is elite. Should Edwin still be elite? I wouldn't be shocked if he was. Have we seen him fall back? Just a little bit back almost brings him into Clay Holmes range. Because Clay Holmes could take another step at the full season, potentially, of the Yankees closer. He hasn't done that yet. So I like the idea of that. And secondly, Woodruff, I am a tremendous Woodruff fan. I have him in, like, my top four or five starting pitchers in my rankings right now. I think he's that good. I, the comment I make that people probably get sick of, if Corbin Burns wasn't so good, people would talk more about Brandon Woodruff. Like, he is that good, that consistent. He is the ace you're looking for. And if you can get him in round three, that means you got two really good bats ahead of that to have him as your ace. So I'll go with the Woody home side of things. Yeah, I, mean, I personally have drafted Woodruff in definitely more than one place so far this year. And I think your cohort, Michael Simeone, said it on Twitter a couple of days ago. Whenever you have Brandon Woodruff in your rankings, it's probably too low. And so that's uh, something to keep an eye on. The only thing about Woodruff is that you think, no matter how good he is, that he has had this experience of Pitching 200 innings, he has not done that yet. It's the only, and not that he can't do it or won't do it this year. He just hasn't done it yet. So I think that's really the only thing that kind of keeps him down on the draft boards, especially if you're just the type that you're in the draft room and you see the list of players ranked and last year's stats. Matter like you see certain numbers that pop out to you, and maybe that innings pitch number is the one that pops out to you when it comes to choosing between Woodruff and somebody else. I don't know, but it is it's something easy, I think, for a lot of people to get into. is like, oh, these are the numbers we saw from last year. I don't have time to look at what I think he's going to do next year. I'm just going to go by based on what I'm seeing in front of me. Kevin, do you go in a different direction? Are you still focusing on depending? Maybe it depends on format as well. But in general, Edwin Diaz and Kyle Wright in your pitching, in your rotation, or Brandon Woodruff and Clay Holmes? No, I'm on the same side here. And it's because I think it's not just that all starters are being drafted a little later right now. It's Brandon Woodruff himself, as you guys are already talking. He's the ninth starting pitcher off the board. I think he's better than that. And here's the thing. Right now, this is a no-brainer to me. Because right now, over well, since December 1st, the 25 DCs that I alluded to earlier, Brandon Woodruff is actually going 16 picks over a full round after Edwin Diaz. So you can take the actual choice here is you want Diaz and Wright or do you want Woodruff and Holmes and a second round hitter? 
<laughs> as of right now. Now, that's not how this is going to end up. This is going to end up with Brandon Woodruff moving up and, and being drafted uh, around the same spot as, as Diaz, in which case I agree with Bubba and I still go that route, even with the question marks in the Yankees back into their bullpen. Holmes is still useful, even if he doesn't end up getting a majority of the saves there. And I think Brandon Woodruff is like you guys are saying, and a lot of people are saying, so it's not going to be happening much longer, but right now he's being underdrafted and by uh, myself as well. I don't have him anywhere oh, and yeah. I don't know why it's crazy. It's, I'm kicking myself right now. It's probably too late. <laughs> all right. Let's, we talk, we hear it all the time and we've talked about it as well. Outfield is wasteland at a certain point in your drafts. And so the question is, Kevin, are you prioritizing your outfielder early on or are you willing to wait on it knowing what's going, what else you could get at a different position? Second base, also not the strongest position that we are seeing. So I'm comparing outfield ones versus your starting second baseman. This is going in, at least in one of these drafts, they were going, these players were going in the third and sixth round respectively. Combination of Luis Robert and Tommy Edmond, assuming you're putting him at second base. And then... Your other option would be Jose Altuve in the third and waiting on Corbin Carroll to be your first outfielder in the sixth round. Yeah, I really hate to say that anybody is off my draft board because I think there is a price for everyone. The counterpoint to that is, as I was talking earlier, grabbing our guys at ADP and why do we think we should grab a guy just because he falls a little bit, stick to our plan. And that's what I'm really trying to do. So I'm going to follow that advice here and i haven't dropped it drafted luis robert it hurts if he has a healthy season the teams that do pick him are going to be very happy they did i just don't see it i don't see him staying healthy right now he's in byron buxton territory for me i know it hasn't been as long but it's it seems every time he gets going he gets injured just like buxton has been doing to us for a little longer period of time. So I am definitely on the Altuve and Corbin Carroll side here. In spite of a little more unknown with Corbin Carroll, I think we can at least count on the stolen bases that he's being projected for. And the rest of it should come along as well. A little more of a question mark. But especially in the first few drafts I did, I was really targeting Jose Altuve. He's come up a little bit in, in ADP throughout draft season, I think. So I haven't gotten him everywhere and not as much recently. But early in draft season, I was really targeting him. The nice batting average, the run scored will be there at the top of that lineup. Probably continue to steal a few bases don't know that I would count on the 20 or more. He came back, what do you have, 18 in 2022, I think, without looking. I'm not counting on that anymore, but certainly double digits, especially with the new rules. So this one was pretty easy for me. Altuve and Carroll. Yeah, we really want to focus on here is the fact that if you do wait on outfield, if that's the decision you think you can handle, you have to be willing or realize that somebody like Corbin Carroll is going to be the option that you're going to have to push up. Like, that's I think that's why a lot of people are complaining. Like, I can't believe Corbin Carroll is going so high. I don't think it's so much because people believe in Corbin Carroll. I think they're drafting themselves into a situation where they don't have much of a choice. And he is the best option at that point. So they're pushing him up. Just I have definitely best. done that in a couple of drafts. Yeah. <laughs> I have a I have a couple pretty ugly outfield groups. Yeah. And then I wanted to pair 
Luis Robert and Corbin Carroll because of all the question marks. Robert, like all, everything you said, all the question marks is playing time applies a Robert just as they do to Carroll for different reasons. You could easily take out in this scenario, take out Robert and put in somebody like Cedric Mullins or Adolis Garcia who are going really similar to where you're seeing Robert getting drafted in that third round in a 12-teamer. But as it's laid out here, Bubba, do you see yourself going in a different direction than Kevin mentioned or the same page? No, I'm on the same page as Kevin. It's, it's the health of Robert. It's, that's the part. Is I love him as a talent. Like Kevin said, if he produces, someone's going overall competition probably. like this, He's that good, but way too many question marks for me. I'll take at that point in the draft, give me the secure Altuve and I'll gamble on Carroll. Or you mentioned Adelise and those guys. I'd almost go that with Edmund Combo if I had to choose. But for what you have here, I'll take the Altuve side of things. I think that's fair. All right, last one here. It's the more complicated one. So bear with me if you're listening at home. Hopefully you are. There's a podcast. It's If you're not listening, I'm not sure what you're doing. You are, we're going to talk about whether or not you're prioritizing your catcher or you're prioritizing starting pitching early on in the draft. So basically, are you looking for this pairing here has a high end catcher and a low end catcher or double tapping to mid round, like mid round catchers. And then the pitchers that you could be getting in their stead in those rounds. All right. So we're looking at the high low combination of JD Riomoto and Jonah versus the mid round picks of MJ Melendez plus Cal Raleigh, who are pretty much going back to back ninth and 10th rounds. You could get them both, especially if you're close to a turn with the top end with the real Muto pairing, you could get in the middle rounds, a back to back pick of Nestor Cortez and Logan Gilbert. And with the mid round picks of MJ Melendez and Cal Raleigh, you could grab somebody like Sandy Alcantara, Sandy Alcantara at the top of your draft. But then you're stuck with somebody like Mackenzie Gore in the 20th round instead of Jonah Heim in that spot. Kevin, you start us off here. This is, again, this is a lot of people talk about how they strategize their catching, how they're going to draft their catcher. Some people just bank it all the way at the end. Some people double tap at the beginning. I'm not giving those options. I'm just giving you the option of stars and scrubs versus two mid-tier guys and the pitchers that you could be getting instead in those spots. Which direction do you think you end up going? Yeah, I have drafted my catchers in both of these general types of with these general types of plans and i'm typically doing one of these i'm not waiting on both catchers i used to for the longest time uh even my roto leagues that i played in were one catcher leagues and so then i would wait i i always did but between the shift of roto and then two catcher leagues and then listening to one of Bubba's partners, Toby Batflip Crazy, over the years, it finally kicked in that I, I need at least one early catcher, especially when a guy like JT Real Muto is out there. In, in this last on-the-wire listener league that Bubba and I were in, I took him at the end of the second round. I'm a fan of this move, so I definitely like just looking at the catcher side, the JT Real Muto and Jonah Heim, who is a late catcher that I don't mind having as a catcher too. I like that pairing better than Melendez and Raleigh, although I'm okay with that move. I have said on previous episodes, I'm really trying to get both of my catchers by the time Cal Raleigh, Travis Darno, and at the time Sean Murphy was going in that range, he's moved up a little bit. But I want my second catcher by then in most cases, unless I have JT, guy like Jonah Himes, perfectly fine. And I prefer that because JT Ruomilto is going to have more at-bats so that it's going to help 
boost. It's not just him and Heim. It's him and his extra at-bats. I know that's factored into the ADPs, but it, it's just an added bonus for me. And then the kicker is, I like the pitcher pairing from the same group better as well. I'm a big fan of this tier of pitchers, Nestor Cortez and Logan Gilbert. I would love to have paired on any league as even you have them here as ninth and 10th round. Perfectly happy with them as my two, three. If I take one starter earlier and then I'm not, there, there's a lot of hitters or maybe a reliever mixed in there. If I'm not grabbing my pitchers till here, I like that much better. I, I just don't take guys in the range where Sandy Alcantara is being taken. I typically don't take any of them. I do have some Jacob DeGrom shares so far this season. That's a big gamble I'm taking that I'm willing to take. I That's because I feel if we, if we get 120 innings out of Jacob DeGrom, that's far more than where he's being drafted, far more value than where he's being drafted right now. And anything on top of that, then you're talking exponentially making your team better. So I have taken that gamble on DeGrom, but typically I don't take the, this top tier or the top group of pitchers, starting pitchers being drafted, and especially pairing them with a guy not till the 20th. I'd much rather have the two pitchers from those mid rounds in almost every case, regardless of who the pairings would be, which is the point you're trying to get to more of a general strategy here than specific players. So yeah, this was JT Rio Muto and a late catcher and two mid round pitchers is much more appealing to me. Yeah, I mean, I think I hear it all the time and I think we talk about it as well. You got to, you, everybody who goes in the draft, you hear him say, this is usually where I'm getting X, Y, and Z. And so we're talking about ninth, 10th. Hey, I, I like so many of the pitchers in this grouping. That's usually where I'm going to get my SB two and three or my three and four or whatever. So you knowing going ahead of time, what you're going to be going after kind of dictates what kind of what grouping here you're going to be picking. Baba, do you see yourself with a different strategy, especially when it revolves around catchers and what Kevin's talking about? Like how do you prioritize your catching drafting? I do delete catcher if you can do it. I'm finding I like the depth of catcher this year more than most. I guess this is what happens when you have to write up 56 catchers for a draft <laughs> preview. But I can live with some guys a little differently. And it goes back to the whole premise of this is if you take X, Y, and Z in certain rounds, are you good with these catchers here type thing? And so that's the point of the exercise. For this exercise here, I love the JTR side of things. He's elite. There's no doubt about it. Like Kevin said, Toby's kind of convinced me of why you do it. Is it a must? No. But does it make a lot of sense? Yes. And one other thing I'll throw on the JTR bandwagon for this year with Harper being out for so long, that can be more DH chances for JTR to save those legs for later in the season. So that, that's a big plus as well. You might get even more at-bats than expected. So I'll take that side. And more importantly, like I said, I'm good with most catchers. It's the pitching side of this debate that gets me. Like Kevin said, is I don't want to have to rely on McKenzie Gore in the 20th if I don't have to. If it's like my if I have to. But I love the idea of getting Cortez and Gilbert. And I recent on the wire, I got Gilbert in round 11. I'm um, the second pick in round 11. But that's where I got him. So I have no problem with this. I'm a big fan of this. So I'll take the JTR side. More importantly, because of the pitching you get in the ninth and 10th round compared to that third and 20th round pitcher situation. Yeah. Anybody listening at home, no saying to themselves, out loud, I don't have to take McGenzie Gore. Yeah. That's, this is the, that's not the, point. <laughs> that's not the point of this project. <laughs> you have to go into this, assuming that everything else you did in your draft is completely equal. And this is a very specific uh, microcosm of your draft that you have no control over. It's All really right. interesting in the, on the wire league that Bubba and I drafted, there weren't, 
hardly there weren't many pitchers taken around the 20th round there's a lull here there was a handful taken in the 19th round and then in the 20th there was only nathan eovaldi and alex cobb none in the 21st and we get to tyler anderson as the first pick of the 22nd so there's like a 25 to 30 pick range here where only two starting pitchers were taken and that's the range we're talking about here so yeah if you say a lot of people just the name mckenzie gore is going to turn them off we're looking at guys like alex cobb nathan eovaldi Brian Bayo and Justin Steele being the next two starters taken after that point. That's the kind of guys we're looking at. Yeah, at that point, the warts are going to over <laughs> overvalue the the prospect of them doing anything special. All right, that's a good group of pairings to talk about. Some players that you might have to consider and directions you might have to consider going into your draft. So take that with that what you will. Kevin, is there any other advice you might be able to provide as people ramp up their drafting throughout the course of 2023? Nope, nothing big. Just a reminder, we have the Bat and the Bat X projections out today. We've had Steamer out for quite some time. There have been other projections available that some of us subscribe to. Ariel's ATC is going to be out next week. Yeah, we can move things around. Yes, we can We can see what outliers there are from one projection system to another and use that as a reason to make take a deeper look and see why one is different than the other. But don't cherry pick your projections. When you're picking your players you like or ranking your players in the order you like, don't just take the player with the best projection out of all of them, but then shift to another projection system for another position of players you like. That's not going to work out very well. Right. And in that case, do not take a look at the Masataka Yoshida projections <laughs> as they just came out as well. Yeah, we'll have Ariel Cohen on next week's episode talking about his ATC projections and projections in general. So we'll get a little bit deeper into that conversation next week. But for now, that's going to I think it's going to wrap up episode 98 of On the Wire. Bubba, why don't you remind everybody all the different places they can hear your voice and where they can find any written work that you're putting out as well. And uh, are you, I think we talked about a pre-show, but are you doing anything? Are you hoping to do anything for for PitchCon coming up at the end of the month? Yeah, if Nick will have me, I don't know. I'm going to try. I'll have to (laughs) see if he can squeeze me in. Nick's a big deal. And we'll have to see if I can be on plan on doing it for the third or fourth year in a row now or whatever it's been going on. So yeah, definitely help support that cause the best that I can, whatever Nick needs. So I'll be helping you'll be seeing my face for radio doing that. But you can find me Bench with Bubba coming out multiple times a week. I do Tuesday nights usually with Toby Bubba, Bubba and the Bat Flip. Thursday nights usually with Bloomfield with Bubba and the Bloom. We got a new feed for that. If you subscribe, you can be on the Bench with Bubba feed. So go check that out. It'll be on Bubba and the Bloom. It's out on all your listening platforms. You'll have to subscribe to that to get that podcast for you once a week. Written content, Gaining the Edge is where I'm really starting to pump stuff out with the boys over there. Join our Patreon if you'd like. Come check it out. I also write for Fantasy Pros and for Baseball HQ. So come check those out. And more importantly, check me out on Twitter at BDNTrick. I'll tweet everything out there way too many times. So you'll find all the info right there. Awesome. Yeah, you should be following everything that Bubba does, whether it's audio, written, what have you. Even the tweets are good. Make sure that you're checking that out. Yeah, one more thing. I did want to say, first off, you maybe you're going to let me. I'm just going to jump in the gun as the host and we came out. I want to thank you guys for having me on, though, because it's really cool to, to talk with you guys. You guys have a great show. I'm not just saying that because I'm on the show. So you guys came on the scene a couple of years ago. Keep doing what you're doing. You guys are doing awesome stuff there. So keep making that happen. We're all listening. So if that helps you out at all, we are all listening. So enjoy it. 
Checks in the mail, Bubba. I appreciate that. <laughs> Thank you, Bubba. <laughs> Thank you so much. That is going to wrap it up for the 98th episode of On the Wire. Make sure you're listening all off season. We'll be back every Sunday and look for us to do our 100th episode live at PitchCon as well. So keep an eye out for the schedule on that. It'll go on the feed as well, but we'll you can watch it live whatever time slot Nick puts us in at. You follow me, myself, on the Twitter at 80 Great. That's all spelled out. Kevin is at Hasting Kevin. Of course, follow the pod itself at On The Wire Pod. Once again, thank our guest Brian Bubba Entrick for joining us. Follow him on the Twitter and Gaining the Edge at Gaining the Edge. After all that, I am Adam Howe. And on behalf of Kevin Hasting, thanks for listening, and we bid you goodbye. <laughs>